an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, Wakanda Forever is a box office bright spot, but most other films just aren't filling seats. Plus, the new movie She Said is about the New York Times reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story and helped launch the Me Too movement. I'll talk with Zoe Kazan, one of the stars of the film. I think we've made some steps since this article came out in 2017 and i think in other ways things haven't changed at all but first a film about the last months of america's 20-year war in afghanistan matthew heineman's first documentary cartel land which i talked to him about in 2015 examined the complicated mix of factors that fuel the opioid epidemic. In 2018, his Showtime series The Trade was a continuation of that work. In it, Heinemann followed a drug lord in Mexico and law enforcement officials and people addicted to heroin in the United States. For his latest documentary, Retrograde, Heinemann embedded with one of the last groups of U.S. Army Special Forces to be deployed to Afghanistan. I spoke with Heinemann at the Telluride Film Festival Festival, where the documentary premiered. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. This is going to be an odd question, but I'm going to start by asking, how is your mom? Because the first time we talked about Cartel Land, you talked about how worried your mom was whenever you went off and made a movie. Is she still around, and she, does she still lose a lot of sleep whenever you're making a film? She's still around. Uh, she actually just saw the film for the first time at the premiere yesterday. Um, but actually, while I was making the film, it's the first time I've ever lied to my mother. I did not tell her where I was going. Um, you did not say you were going to Afghanistan? I did not. I what just, was the cover? The Middle East or France? What was the... I was falling in love. And Which also happened to be true. That also but, happened to be true, yeah. but that was the cover. Yes. Are you still in love with a person? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> um, we were just talking about Woody Allen. I hate to quote Woody Allen, but he did say 90% of life is showing up. But you show up in Afghanistan at a very, very lucky time. And lucky sounds terrible when we're talking about the fall of a country. But this is how many months before the decision is made by the United States to pull out? So we, we always sort of wanted to be on one of the last deployments to Afghanistan. You know, there, there was sort of a fait accompli that we were going to pull out at some point. And so we ended up embedding with a group of Green Berets who deployed in January of 2021. And Biden ended up pulling out the troops um, end of April, early May. So you are with them when they get the news? Yes. All right, guys, I just got off the phone with General Miller. He's been talking to the Secretary of Defense and other key leaders in government, and they're basically made the decision to pull everybody out starting immediately. Now, you have spent how much time with them at this point? A couple months. So they are very comfortable around you and your cameras because what they reveal to you, not so much in words but in expression, is they know this is going to end badly. How would you describe their state of mind? Because even if they don't want to talk about it, and they, there's some mentions, you can certainly see it in their faces. Yeah, they, they actually can't really talk about it uh, legally. Uh, 
and so yeah, their words were because that would be insubordination. Exactly. So their their yeah their words were expressed by their <laughs> by their faces, and I think you know I think that it, it's extremely complicated. Obviously, you know many of them have deployed multiple times. Many of them lost many friends. And, you know, they felt a deep, deep connection to their Afghan partners. And so I think they just felt, you know, I think if you're going to sort of summarize the feeling, it was, you know, that they were abandoning people that they'd spent a lot of time trying to help. So as soon as the news is announced that the U.S. is going to pull out, the Taliban puts the pedal to the metal. And they engage city after city and take city after city. And they are clearly not only winning the war, but the Afghan army knows they're winning the war and more or less for a number of people stop fighting because they know they can't win. And you find somebody who was trying to keep the Afghan army together and to fight the Taliban. Tell us about who that person is and how he came to trust you and let you into his world as his world is falling apart. So, yeah, so basically, you know, we were looking at the footage and, you know, didn't really have a full film um, after the U.S. pulled out. And so in the footage, you know, really clearly emerged um, a general, an Afghan general, General Sami Sadat, who they were working alongside of at this base in Helmand province. And, you know, he, is a, he was a two-star general uh, at the time and a deeply complex and interesting man. And so I, I called up General Sadat and I said, you know, would you be willing to let us follow you for the next however many months, um, to see if, you know, how this fight against the Taliban goes. And he, he said yes, and um, a couple weeks later, we were back in Afghanistan with a completely different lens on the film. So where is this in the timetable? Has the U.S. left? U.S. Had, yeah, they'd been gone for about a month. We okay. arrived in, you know, sort of early mid-May, and just totally, as, as almost with all my films, you know, changed the perspective as reality on the ground changes. And... How does the story of Sadat, how does it work against or with the story of the Green Berets? How do those two stories end up paralleling each other? The whole mission of, of the Green Berets is to, is to, unlike other special forces units, the SEALs, Delta Force, the Rangers, the sort of mission um, of, of Green Berets are to work with partner forces and to help them and empower them. And so they were literally working hand in hand with General Sadat and, um, you know, I think General Sadat was, was an example of uh, a very young, he's 35 years old, um, sort of the next generation of Afghan leaders that, you know, the U.S. helped bolster and train. And, and he's very much a product of, of this, you know, 20-year experiment. When I started talking about your mom, I know that you are drawn not only to potentially dangerous stories, but also potentially dangerous moments within those stories. One is we are with General Sadat, and the Taliban is so close, there are tracer rounds basically flying over his head. And General Sadat, knowing that his army is losing confidence, and there are a lot of people who are quitting, decides to go to the front line. So Tell us a little bit about that moment in the film, why it was important to Sadat and why it was important to your movie. You know, part of the myriad of reasons um, why the Afghan army fell to the Taliban was lack of faith in the central government, lack of faith locally. Um, you know, the Taliban was going to, from checkpoint to checkpoint, either with bribes or with, at gunpoint, you know, convincing 
the perimeters of provinces to start coming over to their side, which they were doing very successfully. And so part of General Sadat, you know, going to the front lines was just to bolster morale and bolster the, you know, the troops. If he's willing to be there, right. then, you know, let's keep fighting. And that's, the, the film really is about a man who is unwilling to accept defeat. Every single neon sign was saying, stop, you know, this is falling, give up. And he just was unwavering and unwilling to accept that. And, and you know, many people, I think, look at the film and, and, and it's, you know, obviously a combination of hubris and, and courage and fortitude and belief. But he is, I mean, he is, I guess, in the most pure way, he's fighting for his country. Of course. He, he, he obviously believed that if he saved Helmand, which was one of those integral provinces to, to Afghanistan, both to the Taliban and to the Afghan government, if he could save Helmand, then maybe, just maybe, Afghanistan could be saved. I want to ask about the moments at the Kabul airport. People know that Afghan citizens know if they can't get over the fence and onto a plane, the Taliban is going to come after them because they know who these people are. And your cameras are on both sides of the fence. There's a moment in the film where you're looking through a fence at a woman and you there's no dialogue. We don't know what she's saying, but we know what she's thinking. Can you talk about that moment visually and what it was like to see all of these people, but in particular, I think you know the woman I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a motif in the film is, is holding on, on faces for, for a long time, um, obviously in an effort to sort of feel the emotion of these moments. And, and that motif really begins with, as the Green Braves leave uh, and we see that sort of desperation and fear both on the Afghan faces and the American faces as, as they depart. Um, and then, it, you know, this motif continues all the way to the final moments at the Kabul airport, including with this very young woman who was staring down the U.S. troops and sort of piercing them with her eyes. And um, never forget shooting that. And then, you know, it made it sort of impossible to cut and... In, in, away from in the film, and ultimately that's the, the final image in the film. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, these wars are decided by people in White Houses or other places, and, you know, this is obviously been a 20-year, the longest war in U U.S. history, um, but ultimately the people that are most affected are, you know, the everyday citizens who just want to live in peace. And so that desperation at the airport was unlike anything I'd ever seen. I filmed a lot of intense situations in my life, but the sheer desperation to flee what they knew was coming, um, having experienced it 20 years before, um, was, was truly unlike anything. You know, I, I, I get emotional often in the edit room, um, at screenings. I've never cried while filming, and I multiple times during those um, during the time at the airport in, the, in these final days was crying behind my lens and had to keep, keep wiping my lens off and um, sort of stepping away at times. And, you know, it, it, it almost makes me emotional now just thinking about, you know, what happened to her? Where is she now? Yeah. There's a coda to this film that we don't see. And the coda is that there are countless Afghan refugees who are having a very difficult time getting anywhere, including into the United States. And the people you are flying with, the pilots, 
are now flying for the Taliban because the Taliban has taken their families more or less hostage and say, you're either going to fly with us or we're going to kill your family. And that's what's happening today, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's the economy is in free fall. The foreign aid is shrunk and non-existent for, for many places, you know, and, and it's just, it's so sad, obviously, most especially for women who've lost their right to be educated, to go out in public, um, and, and all the, you know, gains that were made over these 20 years have been pulled back, and all the promises of a sort of revised and revamped and modernized and progressive Taliban, you know, were just hollow words, first to Trump, to begin these peace talks, and then ultimately as as part of the the final pullout. But you know, it, it became a very clear days, weeks afterwards that this is just the same Taliban. And the conversation around the final pullout among some circles in the United States is how can we abandon these people, which was, I would say, more a criticism of President Biden than actual concern for the Afghan people, because as soon as the pullout was over. Nobody seemed to care about the Afghan refugees. And in fact, I think General Sadat can't even get into the United States, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the many things I've been doing for the past two weeks is trying to, and getting ready for Telluride, is trying to get, along with my amazing team, trying to get General Sadat here. And he was denied a visa three times because they thought he would be a flight risk, which is absurd. Um, a flight risk to whom? Uh, that he'd stay in the U.S., even though he has an entire family and a business and many other things um, where he is currently in exile. That he fought on the front lines for our war, and he is unwelcome. Yeah. I just want to make that very clear. That's the situation. Yes. On that happy note, Matthew, it's great to see you. Thank you so much. Retrograde is in theaters now. It comes out on the National Geographic Channel and on Disney Plus and Hulu in December. Coming up, my conversation with actor Zoe Kazan about her new film, She Said. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. The new movie, She Said, chronicles the efforts of New York Times reporters Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey to uncover the shocking allegations of rape and sexual assault against film producer Harvey Weinstein in 2017. The reporting that Toohey and Cantor did for The Times, along with Ronan Farrow's work for The New Yorker, helped launch the Me Too movement and led to a conviction for Weinstein in 2020 in New York and a 23-year prison sentence. His second sex crimes trial is currently underway here in Los Angeles. In the film She Said, based on the book the reporters wrote about their Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, Megan Tuohy is played by Carey Mulligan and Jody Cantor is played by Zoe Kazan. These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings with a producer, an employer. They were hopeful. They were expecting a serious conversation about their work or a possible project. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. 
Zoe Kazan has been in the industry for a long time. Her parents are screenwriters. She starred in films like The Big Sick and co-wrote the film Wildlife, which Carrie Mulligan starred in. The last time I interviewed Kazan was five years ago, just after the Weinstein story broke. In our conversation then, she talked about how pervasive sexual harassment is in the industry and in our culture more broadly. I had a lot of fear when these allegations came out against Harvey Weinstein that people were going to treat him like the exception instead of the apotheosis of the problem. And um, these women who have come out, women and men who have come out um, since then about other people, I think are like real heroes because they are making it impossible for us to say it is just Harvey Weinstein. Here's my recent conversation with Zoe Kazan about She Said. I was going to go back to the conversation that we last had in 2017. The Big Sick was coming out and it was soon after the New York Times reporting about Harvey Weinstein came out. But you had spoken earlier with The Guardian, which was before the Weinstein stories came out, talking about how rampant sexual harassment was on movie sets. So when this project came along, did it feel as if you had a chance to continue the conversation? You know, I think for me, I was when that Guardian when that reporter for The Guardian asked me about sexual harassment, I think it was the first time I had been asked about that by a journalist. Um and I didn't really think twice about talking about it because um, partially, I think, because of the way I was raised. You know, I have this feminist mother who, um, you know, was always engaging me on this subject as a child, even. Um, and so it seemed like um, kind of a relief in some ways to be asked about something that was like a an evident truth. (laughs) Um, And then I got so much like trolls came after me on Twitter and I felt really vulnerable. And I remember my dad talking to our next door neighbor who had two teenage daughters at the time. And he said, he called, my dad called me up and said, you know, I know that you feel really self-conscious about this article, but um, you know, the teenage girls next door have reached out to tell me how important that was for them and how they're experiencing stuff like that at school. And then that really changed my mind about, I felt like, and, and, you know, I think I felt that way when this, when Jody and Megan's article came out, I felt like my initial knee jerk reaction was like, um, is this going to change anything? Like, will anything be different because of this? And then the answer was so resounding and so quick you know, I think as a culture, we were ready to, to have that conversation. Um, but I felt so grateful in the same way that I think these teenage girls felt grateful to me. I felt so grateful to all of the women who came forward and spoke. And so getting to, to work on this project this time felt to me in some ways, like trying to do right by those women and, um, honor their story and show, the tremendous bravery and strength that and and perseverance and hard work that it took to bring this story into the world. There are several elements to the She Said story, both in the book and the movie. The reporting that Jody and Megan did and the support of their editors, too, the difficulty in getting women to go on the record who face career-ending retaliation or marginalization. And third, the ways that Weinstein tried to threaten, bully, and silence his accusers through people like David Boies, spies like Black Cube. 
Even if you thought you understood the story, what didn't you know? What did you learn in researching and making this movie? You know, I learned a ton about the ins and outs of what it took to nail this story down in an airtight way where it could make the kind of difference that this story ended up making. Like the absolute diligence, ingenuity, and perseverance of these two journalists, the bravery of all the women who came forward. Like I sort of knew that it must be so, but to read it, like to read this puzzle get put together and then have to get remade because a source falls out or because they can't get the paperwork to back up somebody's, um, you know, accusations, whatever the thing is, like they they had to build this. I mean, Jody taught has said to me, you know, writing this piece was like writing a legal document. They had to make it completely infallible. Um, and I think there's great pleasure in watching. I mean, for me as a reader, there was great pleasure in reading. And I hope that for a viewer, there's great pleasure in watching these two women use their brains like a superpower and just keep working at this until they finally get it. If you don't mind, I'm going to play something you said back in 2017 because I think it's relevant to talk about now. So let's hear this little clip from when we chatted five years ago. The history of our industry, of the movie industry, is a history in which women have been sexually harassed, raped, coerced, treated like objects, treated disposably, treated as if like... um as if we're not perennials, you know, treated as if every season they need to plant a new crop of bulbs and those bulbs are women. It's an amazing visual image. But is that history or is that current? I think it's important to talk about the history because only by looking at it squarely can we change anything. And I think that is true about any history. I think that's true about the history of our country. I think it's true about the history of our industry. You know, there have been times in our industry where women were given positions of power. You know, you look at early screenwriters like Frances Marion. And um, I think that there's a, as soon as people realize that that's a job that holds power, they take the power away from women. <laughs> I think there's a real fear of women in power. Um I think we're slowly making change, but I think that the change that happens in our industry can only move as quickly as the change that happens in our world. And, you know, progress is incremental and it's not a straight line. I think we've made some steps since this article came out in 2017. And I think in other ways, things haven't changed at all. Um, but I really believe th the more that we change the way that our society looks and what our expectations are as a society, the more the, our industry will reflect that. I think it's also really important to note that, yes, sexual assault is – there's no room for that anywhere. But if you set aside for a moment sexual assault, harassment, whatever you want to include in that, and look at Hollywood – there are still huge problems about how women are marginalized in terms of the kinds of parts they get to play, how they have to dress for an audition, uh, you know, what their shelf life is in terms of a leading lady, you know, when they, you know, 
how young they have to be to play opposite an older man. So I think it's important that we remember Hollywood, like a lot of other businesses, but Hollywood still has a lot of work to do. If you were to prioritize where the work needs to happen the most, what would be on your wish list? Honestly, it's all tied up together, right? Like, I remember being a very, very young actor, and I was in a production of a play, and there was an issue with a male director, and um, I was uh, the equity deputy, which is like the person who speaks to equity if there's an issue. And equity, I should say, is the actor's uh, union for theater work. Yeah. Yeah. And I um, tried to contact our equity rep and somehow it got back to this director and he like took me into a hallway and said, I thought we were friends and stroked my neck and my arm. And I felt the weight of knowing that I was, you know, a couple jobs into a a career that was just starting and felt like, um, I don't know how like this person has more power than I do. And I don't know how this is going to reflect on me. And because I was (laughs) really strong willed and because I had a mother who always told me to speak up, I went to the head of the theater company and I said, you know, it's him or me. Uh, And as a result, uh, you know, (laughs) that director didn't work at that theater company again, but I didn't work at that theater company again either. And I don't know why that is, but I do think that there is a kind of like way in which women are taught from very young that, you know, that they are disposable and that they're invited to the table because a man has invited them and and let them be there and that their youth and their attractiveness is part of what is getting them at that to that table. And, you know, I, you know, it's a complicated thing. I, I, I don't think that you can unbend one thing from another. You can say, oh, it's wrong to have a dress coat a can where women have to wear high heels or whatever. But what does it really matter when there's still a double double standard about beauty in general? Like it's it's not one thing, you know, um, this is a very unusual movie for me because I have a female co-star who I am arm in arm with in most of this film. And most of the time there's one girl in a movie, you know, or there's two women and there's an older woman and a younger woman, you know, like it, it, there's so many places that you see this. It's, it's not just one thing, but I would say if we can remove the idea of sexual coercion, if we can remove the idea of sexual violence being a threat, um, then we can start to have discussions about parody. So I'm hopeful that next time we talk, it's not about sexual harassment in Hollywood. Uh, I'm, um, but I want to say I enjoy is a hard verb to use on a movie like this. I thought your work and the work of the film was exceptional. So um, congratulations. Thank you. And thank you for your thank you for your thoughtful questions. I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's lovely to have a deep, thoughtful conversation about this movie. That was actor Zoe Kazan. Her movie, She Said, is in theaters now. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes... 
you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Suzanne Watley. Well, a week ago, we talked about the massive losses incurred by the Walt Disney Company on its streaming platforms, $8 billion to date. Today, there's some good news for the media giant, though. Let's hear it. Uh, yes, indeed. And it involves this movie. Do not call him General Oki. They called him Kukul Khan, the Feather Serpent God, killing him. We'll risk eternal war. Uh, That's the new Marvel movie, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. It opened last weekend. It's the follow-up to 2018's Black Panther, which was the sixth highest-grossing movie in domestic theaters and grossed nearly $1.4 billion worldwide. And the new sequel grossed $181 million in its first three days, which was the biggest November opening ever. And this was without Chadwick Boseman, who played Black Panther in the first film. The actor sadly died of cancer in 2020. Yeah, and I think that makes the debut of Wakanda Forever all the more impressive. But impressive is not the first word that comes to mind with another movie that opened this week. Here's a clip from that film's trailer. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. Sammy's on my team, takes after me. That's a clip from Steven Spielberg's new movie, uh, The Fablemans. It opened in four theaters over the weekend. And while the numbers looked pretty good, they actually weren't. Wakanda Forever was playing in well more than 4,000 theaters, and it took in more per screen than The Fablemans. I was talking to an Oscar-winning producer a few days ago, and the producer said The Fablemans news was a disaster, that no one is going to see anything in theaters other than big blockbusters like Wakanda, and if The Fablemans turns into a box office dud. Important to note, that will be the second straight Steven Spielberg movie to do so, as his remake of West Side Story also underperformed badly. And this was a a personal story of his, too. An autobiographical film. I guess you could say the audience isn't interested in Steven Spielberg, but they're also not interested in a lot of things. So recently, some really good, critically reviewed, critically well-reviewed movies like Tar, Armageddon Time, and Till didn't really make uh, much of an impression of the box office. And it's a little bit like income inequality. I've said this before, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. The total box office weekend, last weekend, that's every movie, about 50 in total, that are reporting ticket sales was $209 million. Wakanda accounted for 87% of all tickets sold, meaning table scraps for the remaining films. If you look at the same weekend three years ago, which I did, 2019, before the pandemic, it was a radically different story. The top film was Ford versus Ferrari. wasn't nearly as big a hit as Black Panther Wakanda Forever, but 100 movies were in release, so a lot more movies out there, and Ford versus Ferrari took 28% of the ticket sales, not 87% like Wakanda, meaning there were 72% of all the other box office for the other films. So there was a lot to spread around. It's not the case now. Well, we'll see how The Fablemans does when it goes wide. Yeah. Let's talk about the Grammy Award nominations that were announced earlier this week. John, what stands out to you? Someone once told my wife that given what Beyonce is able to accomplish, there are more hours in Beyonce's days 
than in ours. And I don't think that's true <laughs> because she has a lot of people who do things like grocery shopping, picking up the dry cleaning, the dishes, on and on. That said, Beyonce does have more talent in her days than we do in ours. Uh, before the nominations, Beyonce was tied with Frank Sinatra for the most best record nominations in Grammy history. And now I think it's fair to say Old Blue Eyes is just one more runner-up to Queen B. She had a leading nine nominations for the Grammys, and she now has 88 lifetime Grammy nominations, creating a household tie with her husband, Jay-Z, who picked up five nominations on Tuesday. And we'll see what she scoops up at the ceremony in February at Crypto.com Arena. Thank you, John. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiot's and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.